Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another Ultra Confusion interview. This time we have Matthew Orr of Wet Ink Games. Hello. Uh, Matthew is the creative director. So, Matthew, tell us how you got into making games. I've told my origin story before, and it, it, I the, the more I dig into it, I don't know where it came from because when I was a when I was a kid, I knew that polyhedral dice existed, mm -hmm. and so I bought some, and then I was like, all right, so I'm going to get my friends together, and I got a sheet of grid paper, and I was like, okay, so you're in a clearing, and they're like, we go north, and I'm like, that's a forest. Here, roll this weird triangle die, and you meet that many goblins, you know? Like, it was nothing. There were no rule set. There was no map. I just was like, I want to do this. And so I just started doing it. And I, I, I must have known that role-playing existed, but it's not like I have an older brother that got me into it, or I didn't have any books. I had, like, a sheet of grid paper. And so I, I really, that's how, I mean, that's really my start with role-playing, is, like, I had played some JRPGs, and I wanted to do that in real life around a picnic table with my friends. And so I did. And that's that's the beginning of role-playing for me. So would you say, I mean, did you spend any time playing Dungeons & Dragons? I did in college. I did in college, but not not uh, not till then. Um, and I, I recently had a group that I played with. We played a couple different campaigns over the last 18 months or so. But like, that's very recent, of course. Like, I have not touched an RPG before I started doing it as the GM making up the map it's out of my head, you know? So I, I don't know. I don't know where it came from. I don't know where it came from. I was always meant to do RPG stuff, I guess. So here, here's, here's a, a wild question and, and something that I actually have to battle with myself. When you are in a game, a pencil and paper game, and you're not the GM, how hard is it for you to not want to take those reins when things aren't going just right? Uh, nowadays, it is sort of like a double think because I've got like actually a third level on there, right? So mm -hmm. now that I make games as well, it's like you read, you're you're playing in a game and you're you, you. I don't find it's hard to like jump in because it's like it's almost like a relief uh, right. to some extent, right? But like, oh, somebody else has to take care of this problem. And you see somebody playing a rule wrong, and you're just like, hey, GM's fiat. They're going to play this rule wrong, and that's fine. I'll just go along with it. And um, then, you know, sometimes that, you know, later it's like, oh, man, I think I did this rule wrong. Why didn't anyone say anything? And it's like, well, I, you're doing it. You're the, char you're the one in charge. Right. Um, and then I've got the third level of, like, would I have written it this way? Like, these rules are confusing. Like, I wish the index was better. Like, so it is kind of, you do have to kind of operate on those different levels, but like, um, yeah, it's, uh, no, I don't really have that temptation to like jump in and like I said, it's usually like, good, I, don't, I could just play my character and just worry about my own backstory and how that relates to what's going on, you know, let me check my, uh, my motivations. Right. No, I, I could. I could see that in a way. I um, I used to run uh, like a homebrew pencil paper myself, and it was a little weird for 
I think it's more, it felt really off for someone else to GM the game that I created. I think that was, mm. that. that's probably my biggest hurdle. Do you experience that? I, I'm trying to think when you say that, like, have I ever sat in a session and had someone else GM my game for me? Mm-hmm. And I don't think I have, um, other than Brandon, my co-writer on the two, uh, you know, two of our three games that we have currently out there in the world. Um, you know, we have each GM for each other in both of those games right. um, that we co-wrote together. So it's, it's not quite that I'm totally free from it. Um, but yeah, I'd love to do, I'd love to maybe experience that where somebody else that is coming in, um, you know, from completely outside the group and like, Oh, here's what I would do. And I'm like, oh, great. I, you know, again, I think I would, I think I'm at the point of my role playing where I would, submit to whatever they're doing you know because it's you know good you be the gm you tell the story let's find out what happens like i might secretly be trying to break the mechanics for them behind like i I might try and do that like yeah but but uh no i would just to test my own system but uh yeah i think uh i think i would i'd be happy to have someone else gm for me so uh, so you made mention of uh, a couple of the that you've had you have a couple games out uh, one of them, or uh, two of them that I actually uh, own, uh, is uh, Wild Skies, Europa Tempest, and Never Going Home. How long have you been working on Wild Skies? We worked on Wild Skies for a couple years. Between like, we were, we got the, we got the setting down first. We used a different game that already had rules, and we just played those rules in a new setting. So we developed the diesel punk animals um, that Wild Skies, for those of you who are audio only, uh, yeah. Wild Skies is a is set in the 1930s in a Europe in which the world First World War ended in huge political upheavals. Um, and so you've got like fascist France and like the the Kaiser is still in charge in Germany and like the civil war in Russia is not decided yet. And you've got a little bit of like big brother going on in England and all that kind of stuff. So it's a very different political landscape than the actual 1930s. Um, the twist on all of that is that everyone is an animal. There are no humans in the setting. Everyone is either an alligator or a peacock or a badger or a lynx or whatever, you know? Um, so, we had developed all that before we got the rules and then it, it took us a couple of years to do the rule set and it was a lot of like all right so we're familiar with e20 systems and we're familiar with very simple games like tristat and um which is one of my co-writers favorite games and you know you we're familiar with a lot of games but like what what hasn't we what what do we want that we haven't seen and for Wild Skies, it was a lot. One of the things that we really wanted to push with that game is the idea that your alignment actually affects something in the game. Mm-hmm. And so, one of the pieces for Wild Skies in character creation, you mentioned all that stuff the career paths and the um, your nationality and your, you know, that kind of stuff, your skill sets. Mm-hmm. Um, but another part of that is the moral compass, where you've got these sort of narrative arcs that you arrange on a on a compass rose and you're always heading 
either toward, you know, peace or war, or you're heading from, you know, maybe you're a person who's moving from security, focused on security to focused on risk or, or something. You, you set up these narrative arcs for your character and you put them on this, this thing. So in that moment when you are like, you know, other systems that may have like these sort of, you're like, um, well, what does it mean that I'm ruthless or whatever? And so like, let me go read the description of that character trait to determine how that actually applies to this particular situation. Mm -hmm. We wanted to make that into more like, well, I'm moving toward destruction. I've, I'm unhinged. I'm going off the rails. I'm moving toward destruction. And so, like, it makes it easier to make that decision of what would my character do when the plane explodes and there's only three parachutes and there's five people and, like, you know, like, that's, it, you know, it, it's, I'm moving toward destruction. Like, I'm, right. you know, like, um, so... That took, uh, like I said, a couple of years to get all this written. And it was the first book that we had written that way. Like we had written, both of us had credits in other, uh, writing for other people's systems mm -hmm. before we wrote Wild Skies. But we'd never, we had no idea how much you have to do to write a book. You know, um, uh, there's a lot of writing. I mean, I've, I've got my copy here. I'll, I, I don't know. I think it's 220 some pages, uh, 256, 260 pages mm -hmm. um, in, in its printed form. And we had just, oh, we haven't written this. We haven't written this. Now that we've written this, we realize we haven't written this. And now that we wrote these three things, that implies that this also has to be written. So, yeah, it took, took a while. It took a while to, it took two years, basically, to get it published from when we said we were going to do it right well I, I for me personally you know this is i grew up with um you know uh trying to uh, draw a parallel here uh i grew up with you know video games when you bought them that's it there's no patches <laughs> and i feel like you know with with like pencil and paper rpgs yeah they might be addendums and there might be new additions or whatever but for the core game you got to have it all right to begin with otherwise it kind of fizzles out so i i totally understand you know wanting to iron out every little kink to make sure you've covered every single one of your bases um so the other game uh that i picked up was never going home so tell us a little bit about that so never going home is set during world war one and it is um the there's some sort of some sort of supernatural terribleness that happened at the Battle of the Somme that opened up uh, communication between humans and the others who are some nebulously undefined beings that live beyond the veil. And now that the veil has been torn open a little bit by the sheer number of people killed at that single moment, uh, that single day at the Battle of the Somme, the soldiers in the, involved in the war now hear the whispers of the others. And so it's a little bit of madness and it's a little bit of corruption and it's a little bit of like um, yeah, making deals with the devil kind of stuff. And the result is that the, there's a supernatural aspect now to World War One. Like it hasn't, like within the scope of our setting, it hasn't really had any major political ramifications like because um, unlike the 
unlike Wild Skies, which is a mercenary game, and you can go to any of the kingdoms, and we've got stats for all of the different countries. Not stats, but descriptions of all the different countries. You can go anywhere. Never Going Home is very focused on the frontline soldiers. So, like, you're still trapped in the war. Like, maybe you can shoot fireballs now, and maybe you're fighting zombies now, but, like, nothing else has changed. Like, you're still involved in the trenches. You're still, like, supposed to go capture some territory. The, 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 the political machinations that are pushing the soldiers forward continue, despite the fact that the war has become even worse than it was in real life. Um, so it's a, it's a much simpler system than a compass system that we developed for, uh, for Wild Skies. And, um, the other part of it, um, the, the thing that's pretty cool is the, You've got, it's D6s only, and you're looking for 5 and 6 to get a success. So you roll some dice based on your skill training, and then you use your stat as sort of, your attribute is sort of like your native uh, proficiency in that area, and then you can adjust that ro initial roll based on the, your stat. So you might turn a 4 into a 5, and that would cost you one point of your brawn, you're trying to hit someone and you need to get a certain bronze score, you roll four, four, five, and you need three successes, well, you've got three brawns, so you use two of those points to push those two fours up to fives, and then now you've got your three successes to hit that target. Um, and that doesn't, like, spin your brawn, it's just every roll you get that thing. Um, uh, so the brawnier you are, the more ability you have to recover from a bad roll. Gotcha. Um, the the other aspect that is in wild uh, that uh, as far as gameplay is the um, the cards you have a you have a deck of cards and that represents your humanity so a lot of the trials in the game will require you to spend the cards and that is that that psychic assault representing the psychic assault of the others on you and what kind of how much of your humanity you're going to give up to survive and you know maybe you need Maybe you need to burn your third grade birth, the memory of your third grade birthday party so that you can, uh, shake off this hit that you just took and keep going, you know, and, but you're, you're losing, it, it's all a, it's a, it's a war setting. So it's, it's a sacrificing your humanity is kind of just, it's, it, again, it's just even more so. It's, it's like war was, the World War One was terrible. Uh, and then we made it worse. Um, so for uh, Never Going Home and uh, Wild Skies, uh, as, you know, uh, the creator of these two, or co-creators, in your opinion, what is the, the uh, I guess, the party size that you think is mm. the optimal number to really get the most out of these games? Yeah, that's so different because I think it depends so much on what you want to, what kind of... Um, what kind of a story you want to tell. Um, I'm used to playing with about five to six to seven players, which, um, so it, sometimes that results in something's getting unwieldy, but I, I've also played very successful games with just two players and a GM. Um, so, you know, there's a lot more character development that happens when you play with a smaller thing. So um, I generally kind of imagine that four to five 
players are going to be part of any party. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, I probably wouldn't try and play uh, Never Going Home with like nine players or something like that. That just, you know, you would kind of lose that focus on the the individual horrors that the characters are experiencing. Gotcha. Um, but uh, but it could work. You could find. I think you could find a way to make it work. Um, uh, with Wild Skies, I think it kind of supports because it is supposed to be a mercenary crew. You kind of got to have your party. Like who's going to be the sneaky one? Who's going to be the tough brawler? Who's going to be the face of the party? You know, like mm-hmm. you, it kind of lends itself more to building out. So five or six is pretty pretty good. You can get all your bases covered that way. Um, but yeah, I don't know if that answers the no, no, question. No, it does. It does. Uh, I absolutely. Um, you know, there there definitely are games where the more the merrier. Um, you know, where you need those uh, those role players in order to get the full experience. And then I I do understand that uh, that sometimes, even though it's not strictly uh, noted anywhere, that certain games or certain campaigns uh, really do have an unspoken cap uh, a number that when you get over it things may not go as smoothly or maybe you know there's there's more I guess outside of the game problems than there is inside also the you know if this isn't just a one shot and you're going to be doing a campaign for a while trying to pull in you know six seven people every week or every two weeks something like that it it, you know it it definitely can make things difficult yeah i most of what i have most of the especially for never going or never going home most of that i have played are one shots because i go to cons back in the the before times when we had conventions and we had local gaming events and i would run one shots and you know it's a new game it's an indie game Two or three people are only only are going to be interested in it. So most of the one shots, mo- most of my experience playing Never Going Home is playing with like two or three people who are three or four people who never played the game before and maybe never will again. You know, right. and you're just responsible for giving them that that three hours of uh, you know vision of horribleness. Um, so I I don't know. It's um. It is designed. We thought about how you could play it long term. Mm-hmm. There's a corruption mechanic in the game that, uh, in addition to the kind of battling with your cards, um, you don't necessarily like die when you lose all your cards. What will make you straight up die is taking corruption, and you've got a five corruption that you can take. And once you take your fifth corruption, you can no longer be a player character. Like maybe that body is now going to show up as an NPC that the rest of the party has to fight, but you as a player have to get a new character because like that, that person has wandered off to join the others. Like it's gotcha. no longer human enough for you to be an NPC, for you to be a PC. Um, so I had never, I, I, did we put that in the game and like, would it be interesting to play long enough that your characters take enough corruption that they start to die off in that way? Yeah, it would be really cool. Have I actually experienced it? Uh, no, I have not. Because, again, I'm mostly running one-shots for people who've never put to introduce the game to players. Um, 
but yeah. So with this crazy ass world that we live in right now, uh, and everything basically being pushed to virtual, how do you think the pencil and paper world is faring with with you know not being able to like gather around the table and and having to do these these virtual gaming sessions? So it's a mixed it's mixed. So I know for myself, like my weekly gaming group, we used to meet at you know my co my co-authors. He's he's got a, a house that has a big basement with a big table and a bunch of games on the wall and like that was where we've met as long as he's had that house and we went virtual and it is sad not to get together weekly and like have that camaraderie around the table and then you've got like 20 minutes of hanging out beforehand and you've got like up to three hours of hanging out afterwards as People are like, oh my gosh, it's so late, I need to go to bed. And then they just keep talking for another 20 minutes. Right. You know, like that experience is lost because now it's like, well, game's over, boom, call's done, everyone's got everyone's out of the call, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing that it is allowed, I think, is we my game group, I can only speak about my game group in this aspect, is like we have uh, we've had as many as nine people in the group. And so when you get nine people around a table, you're basically having four or five simultaneous conversations. Some people are role-playing their characters and they're doing the scene. And then somebody else is asking like, hey, did you see that movie last night? Right. And then somebody else is, and you know, but going virtual, like all that stuff is, all that side stuff is gone or it's happening in the chat. And you really get to spotlight the characters of like, these two people are gonna now play a scene and nobody else can interrupt them with their side conversations and nobody else is having a, you know, nobody else is, is, um, is, is not paying attention. You know, like we're all watching the same video chat or the same video stream and, and seeing these people play their characters. I think it's, it's created some opportunities for role-playing, which were previously missed, you know, um, it, it's made it much more focused on the, the story aspects of the game. Um, but a lot of people don't want to do it. You know, there's other people that are just like, I don't want to game online. I want to game in person. And so like, it's just cut that off completely. You know, um, it is all the, all the impossibilities, the difficulties, not impossibilities, the near impossibilities of getting a regular game group to meet in someone's basement every week. Like that's a trip out there to that, to that neighborhood, you know, um, but it's also then once you're there, you're there and you have your game. And like at home, like your internet can go down, like suddenly your dog is having a problem that you have to go solve. And, uh, you know, your kids are coming in to ask you about school stuff for the morning. And like, you know, that, that all of those things that are happening because you're at your house don't happen when you go to your friend's basement. Right. Um, but so it's a mixed bag, I think in that respect I, i've experienced both the ups and the downs of going online um and again in, in i was we were talking before the chat about like my life not changing that much we were actually already doing roll 20 on our laptops even though we were still sitting around the table because the gm that what i've been doing for the last year we've been playing dnd on roll 20 to get the positioning and the maps and all that kind of stuff like that's just how our 
DMs wanted to do 5e. So we've been doing that for two years, mm -hmm. but just one year now has been online in our own homes instead of all online around a table. Um, so uh, yeah, I don't know. Changes and not changing at the same time. So I have one final question for you. Um, uh, and I asked this of, of everyone I interview, and that is, do you have any advice for those looking to create uh, the next, uh, or create their passion project, uh, their pencil and paper RPG or, or whatnot? I think, I don't know if this is, I, the, so there's, there's two, there's two steps that I think are great. One is get started. Start it. Don't, don't wait. Start it. And the second one is finish it. Like, you know, what I mean by that is like, start, start something today that is small and then finish it. And then you're like, wow, I made a thing. Mm -hmm. And then maybe next week you'll start something that's a little bit bigger. And then it maybe takes you two weeks to get that done, but then you're done with that one. And you, you, you build up your skill set, you build up your confidence, you build up your uh, experience with these things. Like don't, if you're waiting until you retire to start writing a novel, you're doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. Write a six sentence story this afternoon. Then you've, then you've done it. You've, you've created something, you know, um, and, and let that excitement for what you're doing snowball, um, and, and drive you forward so that you won't have to wait till you retire to have the time to write a whole novel, like, or, or, or whatever the analogy is analogy to or the analogous thing is for what you're trying to do like um, yeah so th those would be my two-part advice start and finish you know um which i don't know that's great advice but that that's what i got no it's simple it's easy but it's always it's also very difficult to do uh speaking from from uh personal experience starting something yeah i could do that finishing yeah. it that's more hit and miss. So I totally understand it. it. And, and, I, and I, I truly believe uh, along the same lines as you do. Uh, you got to start small, uh, you know, build that momentum, see that you could do it, and then you know, build it from there. And so I'm totally behind that. Uh, I, I want to uh, thank you for taking time uh, to do this interview. Uh, I wish you the best in all your future endeavors. And ladies and gentlemen, I can personally say that uh, you definitely need to check out anything and everything that White Ink Games creates, especially Never Going Home and Wild Skies Europa Tempest. Can I give a plug for the near future? Absolutely. Like, uh, we, we've talked about the games that we have out already, but mm -hmm. uh, we are uh, very soon. We, we've been throughout 2020 working on um, a co-production with another company, Game & Curry, and it's going to be... It, it, it's it's entering the final phases of production and we will soon be printing it so it will soon be available Shangxi blood in the banquet hall which is written by banana chan and sun Kun lim and they've written this amazing um story about immigrant struggles in early 20th century america and dealing with the literalized 
problems of racism uh, in the form of Shang-Chi, the, the infamous hopping vampires of China. Um, so this is our biggest thing that we've been involved in before is making this, bringing this to, the, to, to being a physical product. Uh, we're very proud of all the work that uh, Banana and Sen and our designer Matthias, uh, you know, like art by Stephen Wu, um, cover by Quan Chai Moriai, like um, it's just a huge project for us and we're so excited that it's after like a year being in our hands and multiple years being in development from the game designers, uh, it's finally going to be out in the next couple of months here. So that's our big plug for the future. So Awesome. Be looking for that. All right, thanks.